I'm Kate Daniels. One of the big tragedies of our time in the United States is the whole issue of mass incarceration. Since 2002, the U.S. has had the highest incarceration rate in the world, even with some prison populations increasing in some parts of the world. The natural rate of incarcerations for countries comparable to the United States tends to stay around 100 prisoners per 100,000 population. The U.S. rate is 500 prisoners per 100,000 residents, or about 1.6 million prisoners in 2010, according to the latest available data from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. To share insights and perspectives, James Kilgore, a writer, researcher, and educator at the university level and a man who spent some years locked in a high-security prison, joins us to discuss his latest book, Understanding Mass Incarceration. And just to note, this is a conversation from approximately two years ago. James Kilgore, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. Good morning, Kate. It's a pleasure. I am just so grateful for this work that you are doing, and in particular right now, the book that I hold in my hands, Understanding Mass Incarceration, A People's Guide to the Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time, and where some of us might have a sense of this happening, some more strongly being totally aware of the inequity and the injustice that goes on. This makes it so easily available to all of us to read the stories to what I feel is a really unbiased, direct approach, education that we all need. Well, thanks very much, Kate. Um, this book really was inspired by my own experience of spending six and a half years in federal and state prisons in California. And, and during that time, I could see that there was this endless stream of bodies coming through the gate, and in particular, that a disproportionate number of them were African Americans and Latinos. And I, mean, I knew something was horribly wrong, but I didn't exactly know why. But when I was released from prison in 2009, I was kind of determined to find out and try to do something about it. So I began to do research as well as being active in my own community. I live in a Champaign County in central Illinois, and that led to the publication of this book, which I hope is a not a dense academic text, but rather is something that's accessible to a range of people, including a number of the people that I happen to serve time with in prison. That's interesting. Have you had any response from those people to the book? Uh, I haven't yet. I've sent the book to a number of people, but mail uh, back and forth between prison and the streets is sometimes quite slow. So I haven't had any direct uh, feedback as of yet, but I'm expecting some. I, there's a number of people who I know will write, and some of whom I've even quoted in the book. Do you feel that because of the nature of the book that there might be an issue with any kind of communication about it because it's going to be censored? Well, you never know. Um, prison censors are very arbitrary, I can say, and you know, each state, sometimes each county has its own rules and regulations, so it's certainly not impossible that it would be uh, censored, but I'm hoping that it won't be. Exactly. My hope as well, because that would certainly be interesting feedback for yourself and perhaps would enter uh, into a, a commentary or perhaps a future book. Exactly. So in terms of this book, Understanding Mass Incarceration, um, I was not aware, but apparently just over a year ago, the New York Times had written that this American experiment 
in mass incarceration has been a moral, legal, social, and economic disaster. It cannot end soon enough. And so this is interesting that there is that insight that what's happening isn't working. But is that statement being heard, or was it just an opinion in a newspaper? Well, I think we're uh, we're going through a period where all of a sudden a lot of attention is being paid to criminal justice and the issue of mass incarceration. If we just flip back the clock to 2012, criminal justice and certainly the issue of mass incarceration were not even mentioned in the presidential campaign. But now we've had everyone from you know, Rand Paul on the far right to Bernie Sanders pronouncing their opposition to mass incarceration and their desire to end the racialized war on drugs. We've seen the Pope going in to visit people in prisons. We've seen the president going inside of a federal prison for the first time. And we've seen a lot of movement in in Congress to change some of the sentencing laws, which have been so central to the advance of mass incarceration. So I think there's a lot of There's a lot of talk about it, and there's a little bit of action in certain places, but we still are really not at a point where we've seen major transformation, but I think there's possibilities given the increased awareness. Which can't help but ultimately be good. At least we hope that's the case, but it's not something to just take for granted. I think this book, again, Understanding Mass Incarceration, is a way for us to gain information and awareness because it does take all of us, or certainly a huge number of us, also being conscious and active, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the points that I reiterate in the book and when I, when I speak is that I don't think we can count on politicians to end mass incarceration. I think we can count on them to make some relatively minor changes on their own initiative. But we're talking about a massive problem. To get back to the level of incarceration that we had when this sort of what I call madness began in the early 1980s, we would have to release about 80% of the people who are currently locked up, which means somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of 1.7 or 1.8 million people. Now, clearly, to undertake something of that scale means a huge change in the way in which our attitude is directed at people who are in violation of the law, so to speak, but more importantly, the way in which we treat people who are poor, who are marginalized, the homeless, people with mental health issues, people with substance abuse issues, and and so forth. So this requires a social movement of a grand scale, and I think a social movement that involves the people who are directly affected by this, not only those who have been incarcerated, but their family members and community members, which is disproportionately African-American communities and Latino communities in inner city areas. And those statistics you mention in the book, and and that comes from, as you said earlier, that you notice those marching into prison, being sent into the prison system, were largely African-American and Latino. That's correct. And I think it's become almost normalized that we have this incredible disparity in terms of the population, the presence of African-Americans and Latinos, you know, in the streets and in prison. For example, in Illinois, the state where I live, the population is 15% black, but the prison population is 58% black. That's a disparity of 43%. 
nationally, blacks make up about 38% of those in prison, Latinos around 30%. So that's really a, a huge disparity, and it's those communities that have paid the price for mass incarceration. And James, if we look at the cause, the reasons that these men and women's prisons are a, a, a separate matter here, but when we look at these men, we find that the crimes aren't such that they're violent, that they've been a real threat to society, do we? Well, I think one of the things that led to mass incarceration was the, the initiation of the war on drugs in the early 1980s, which was largely driven by Ronald Reagan with sort of a political agenda, that is to stir up kind of fear of drug dealers and drug pushers and so forth as a way of mobilizing voters to his, to his party, to the Republican Party. And so in the early 1980s, popular opinion polls showed that most people in this country didn't even see drugs as a major problem. But that didn't stop the initiation of a war on drugs and the creation of a fear campaign, which at that point really targeted young African-American males as thugs, criminals, gangsters, gangbangers, and so forth, and resulted in a huge amount of resources going into policing a war on drugs, which really wasn't a priority but became a priority largely through media campaigns and the fact that many people were still kind of unsettled by the social movements of the 60s and 70s, the civil rights movement, the broader black liberation movement, the anti-war movement, women's and gay liberation movements, all of these things were unsettling to a kind of layer of the population who have come to be known more as social conservatives. And those people were a target of a fear campaign, and that's what I think catalyzed the, the, the war on drugs and mass incarceration, and then it built up a life of its own as many more people and businesses began to be actually benefit from this system. And certainly we're not saying that drugs are not an issue, that uh, there's anything positive or constructive, but wasn't it disproportionate the way that this was focused upon? Well, I think it was disproportionate and also misdirected. Drugs are largely a health, a medical issue, and should be dealt with through you know, substance abuse treatment and other kinds of, and other kinds of health-based programs, but we have come to treat people who have, who have substance abuse problems you know, as criminals and punish them for possession of drugs or for even selling up small amounts of drugs. We've come up with these draconian s sentences, which are called mandatory minimums, where judges are forced to give people 10, 20, 30 years for a given amount of a, of a, speci of a specific drug. So it's really the, the shift in sentencing, but also the shift in the mentality about how we address problems of drug use and drug abuse rather than, um, rather than criminalizing them. We could have taken a different path, which would have been to provide people with the kinds of medical support and other kinds of support they needed to deal with these issues. Indeed. And as you mentioned, the judges and the sentencing, and there were mandatory sentences, this just doesn't seem to make sense. Judges were saying this, 
themselves that this didn't make sense, and yet they were required to follow some law that was uh, placed in effect and uh, sentence people to these crazy sentences, and then there was a three-strike law. So all of that has uh, given us this mass incarceration, hasn't it? Absolutely. Uh, Kate, the sentencing it has really has really had a big impact, and maybe I can talk about one of the people that I was in the federal penitentiary with uh, in Lompoc was a man named Weldon Angelos. Now Weldon, what, he he sold a little bit of marijuana, and he got caught with he got caught with some marijuana and and a and a gun. He had no prior record. He was a business owner. He had a family, and he was sentenced to 55 years in prison. And even the judge who sentenced him said that this is an inappropriate sentence. Since that time, there's been a big campaign by an organization called Families Against Mandatory Minimums. This is made up largely of people whose family members have gotten these draconian sentences for for, for drug-related cases. But Weldon is just one of thousands of people who have gotten these disproportionate sentences, which essentially you know, ruin, the, ruin their lives for one mistake. And it also means that the taxpayers are now paying you know, an annual fee of thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 to keep somebody locked up instead of, instead of putting them back out on the streets where they can be contributing to the community and to the tax base. Exactly. In fact, I think I read uh, in Understanding Mass Incarceration that in New York State, the cost of uh, prison for an inmate is something like $62,000 a year, and uh, the cost of Harvard is... Uh, below that amount. So you you think about the education versus the incarceration, incarceration where they get no uh, rehabilitation, no education. I mean, yes, it's quite extraordinary, Kate, because what's happened, I mean, we have this idea, the popular imagination is that that there's rehabilitation going on in, in prisons, but there's not in most prisons or very, very little. These rehabilitation programs, job training, education, and so forth, have been drastically cut back so that really we're warehousing people. And in the last prison that I was in, in High Desert State Prison in California, we had a motor mechanics workshop. We had an institutional kitchen where people could be trained to to work in in institutional culinary services. We had a horticultural area to train people in horticulture. And none of these even operated at all. They were closed supposedly in the name of security, but millions of taxpayer dollars had been set aside to put to build these really quite modern facilities, and yet they were completely unused. And instead, people were left to do what I would call maniacal exercise routines, play board games like chess and dominoes, and watch a lot of very low-quality television programs. And that's really the extent of what most people's day looked like. And so it it really didn't do anything to prepare people for the transition to this to the streets. A lot of people in there had never at that time used a cell phone, hadn't used a computer, but somehow 90 plus percent of these people are going to be put back out on the streets and people are just not prepared in any way to deal with the incredible changes that they're going to face when they do get there. So, James, doesn't that feel like such a setup, not having the education, being adequately prepared to enter into society means that it will so easily turn them back into the prison system once again? 
Well, that's right. And, and, and furthermore, part of what's happened with mass incarceration has been more restrictions against people with felony convictions. So, for example, uh, under the Clinton administration, a host of laws were passed that banned people with drug convictions from gaining access to food stamps, from other welfare benefits that uh, also kept people out of public housing if they had a drug conviction, even if their own family members lived in public housing. So we have somebody coming out of prison, and their mother may live in public housing, and that's the logical place for them to go, but she's not allowed to have him there, so he has to go and, and you know live in a shelter, or somehow the family has to find the money to pay for the housing for this person uh, somewhere else. And we've also seen the denial of voting rights to people with with felony convictions. So in the 2012 election, about 5.85 million people were denied the, the right to vote because of a felony conviction. So these things do appear, as you put it, to be almost a setup to keep the system going, to keep that revolving door of people going back into the prisons. And as I've said, I, I, I think part of it is that as the system has grown, there's a core of people who are benefiting from this, and they uh, are advocating for their own interests to keep this system going and to make sure that the rules and the laws correspond to, to the needs of a growing system of prisons and jails. Because that point is that this actually is business. It's a big business, isn't it? Absolutely. We call, you know, I mean, it's called the prison industrial complex by many people. I mean, if we look at the if we look at the expenditure just on corrections, it's gone from about six or seven million in 1980 to over 80 billion a year a year today. And there's a whole host of companies that benefit from this. We hear a lot about private prison corporations like Corrections Corporation of America and the Geo Group, and they con- they control about eight percent of the prison beds in the in the country. But we also have a lot of other companies that are in the prison business. We have enormous construction companies. So, for example, Turner Construction Company, which built uh, Lincoln Center in New York, also has built a number of prisons. And these are huge construction projects. So, for example, in California in the 1990s, they built nine medium and high security prisons each of which cost between 150 and 200 million dollars. This is not providing jobs for contractors with a pickup truck, but these are global construction companies that are getting rich off this. And we've also seen companies like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley that brought us the 2008 financial crisis have also been underwriting prison bond, bonds. So they've also been making profits out of this as well as a number of service providers, companies that provide food that provide health care, that provide other goods for the daily operations of prisons. This is a big business. If we think of 2.2 million people in, in, prisons, in prisons and jails, that's a huge city, and the people that are there have a lot of needs, and there's a lot of money to be made off satisfying those needs. So we see this is a huge problem, and it's, it's an issue that we need to address because what is just shockingly stunning is the fact that, you know, the U.S. looks at ourselves as being number one. We're the leaders in, in so much. But this is another area where we are leaders, and this is an embarrassment. 
Absolutely, it's, it's definitely an, embar- an embarrassment. And I think it's a, I think it's a tragedy. Yes. If we look at industrialized countries in Western Europe, in particular, that have a similar similar level of economic uh, development and so forth, we find that the incarceration rates are so much lower, but the crime rates are are relatively the same as the U.S. So, the the United Kingdom, for example, has an incarceration rate about one-fifth of what the U.S.'s incarceration rate is. Finland, Japan, these countries incarcerate at about a tenth of the rate of the, of the United States. And if we could imagine what could be done with that $80 billion besides incarcerate people, we could begin to see where the money might come from for a much more compre- comprehensive, for example, you know, state-provided health care system, a single-payer system, or a much more extensive public housing or mental health systems. All of these welfare programs have been cut back during the era of mass incarceration. And in fact, I think we could actually say that the major public housing program for the last three decades has been the building of prisons and jails. And that's a, a good way for us to transition, actually, to then the families of these men who are incarcerated how that impacts them, and uh, they just get into a really vicious downward cycle. That's correct. The The attention on this issue tends to be focused on the people who are in prison, and that's, a, that's about a 90% male cohort. But we can't say that, that those people bear the sole burden. I mean, the families that are left behind who have loved ones who are incarcerated bear incredible burdens. They bear the financial burden, often of the absence of someone who's providing a substantial income for the family. They bear the emotional burdens and the parenting burdens. They also bear the kind of social and community burdens of of, of holding the community together. And this has taken place at a time when public benefits have been cut back, when it's much harder for, for people to get access to things like like food stamps and and temporary assistance for needy families and so forth. So what's happened is that specific communities in big cities that have lost jobs due to the factory closures and the moving of factories overseas are in a much much worse position to to deal with this massive loss of, of of their population. So one of the things we have to think about to when we talk about ending mass incarceration, is to think about how we don't only reduce the number of people in prison, but how we reallocate the resources that have gone to corrections back into the communities that have been so severely impacted by mass incarceration. We need to put money back into those communities. We can't just dump people straight out of prison onto the streets and expect that somehow that's going to be a a successful outcome. And of course, this is not just some uh, theory out there. There is a way to have people really focused on this, to really incorporate this so that we do see success. Isn't that so? No, absolutely. I, I think there's a lot of people working across the country on, you know, for example, on issues of, of reentry and help, tra- helping people transition back into the community. Even in my own community here in Champaign County, I mean, I'm part of a, of a reentry program, and we assist people with, with trying to get employment, 
with trying to get access to housing and so forth. But we're woefully under-resourced. We basically are a, volu- are a volunteer organization, but we need a support network to be put in place for people who are returning. They need family counseling to figure out how to reestablish connections with, with loved ones and particularly with children, but they also need economic opportunities, opportunities for education and training. All of these things are, are necessary in order for people to make the transition. I mean, there's, there's a lot of organizations across the country. There's, there's a wisdom, for example, in, in Wisconsin that's done wonderful work helping people come back from prison. There's all of us or none in, in California and in other cities that has campaigned to get the question about criminal background off the off job applications, a campaign called Ban the Box, which has now been approved by more than 10 states across the country and, a, and several dozen municipalities. So there's a lot of education going on about the need to provide opportunities for people with felony convictions to, to not make us keep paying and paying for the criminal convictions that we do have. All vitally important. And another piece of this that I want to make sure we at least touch upon is what you call the school-to-prison pipeline, because this is another tragedy that uh, is currently happening and we need to stop. That's right. I mean, one one of the sad parts that we've seen about the sort of prison and punishment mentality is that we've transferred it into into the educational sphere. So, for example, um, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, we didn't have lockdowns in schools. That was just not a term that applied to a school. We didn't have metal detectors in school. We didn't have sniffer dogs sniffing in people's lockers for drugs. And we didn't have student resource officers who were police basically intervening in educational and classroom processes and taking people out of classrooms in handcuffs. But we've now seen a shift and and a much more of a policing approach applied to school disciplinary issues and people getting caught up in the criminal justice system for having an argument with a teacher, for having a, a fight in the schoolyard. People are getting juvenile cases in this, sometimes being locked up in juvenile facilities, sometimes being put on an electronic monitor. But the, the ways of dealing with, this, with these issues through communication, through building relationships, and through helping people grow out of these conflicts have been set aside, and we've applied this punishment mentality. Even in some cases, we have students as young as six years old being taken out of nursery schools and kindergartens in, in, in handcuffs. It's, it's really gotten completely out of out of control. And this is why some people argue that basically students, particularly in inner city schools, are being prepared not for success, but being prepared to be institutionalized for the bulk of their life. And if we look across the country, we've seen that there's been a big rise in suspensions and expulsions, and it's been African Americans in particular who have disproportionately been the victims of these disciplinary policies. And so we can see how the suspension rate leads to the dropout rate, that lack of education just so naturally then spirals downward into criminal activity. And again, you know, there seems to be almost a a, a conspiracy towards making that happen. That's right. It's, It's all interconnected. I mean, it's a system that has grown over the years 
and become this incredible you know net of ways to sort of catch people and and land them somehow behind bars and so so everywhere you turn whether you look at schools whether you look at the healthcare system whether you look at the ways in which traffic fines are assessed a whole range of of aspects of our society have been part of what some people would call a criminalization of poverty and where instead of providing systems of support and treating people as human beings that either deserve a second chance or deserve access to opportunity, we're punishing people for mistakes, and then we're setting up a system where they're more likely to commit these errors again and be punished even more severely. James, we have touched on some really critical issues here, and there's so much more that we could be discussing, and yet time just has really evaporated on us. Uh, This, I can't stress enough how important this book, Understanding Mass Incarceration, is. Of course, it's available, readily available at any of our favorite book sources, correct? That's right. I mean, you can get it from the publisher, which is the New Press. Um, It's also available on Amazon.com. And I also have a website, understandingmassincarceration.com, that has links to ordering the book. Excellent. And that website is an important resource as well with lots of good and important information. James, I just can't thank you enough for being so open and so passionate uh, about this whole subject of mass incarceration. It's obviously something in our society that we need to address and make changes with, and I hope that uh, with this, we are touching hearts and inspiring people to be part of that change. Well, thanks very much, Kate, and I really appreciate your attention to this issue, and I hope that uh, your listeners will become involved in helping to end mass incarceration.